Good morning. Can you hear me? Hey, there we go. Hot mic. One thing I wanted to, that I noticed this morning, I don't know if anybody else noticed, but Chris is pretty talented at taking communion and keeping the piano going. That was pretty impressive. Also notice that uh, it's, a, it's really wild how the Lord works um, between the scriptures that are chosen by uh, ones that give the sermon and the ones that do communion and the greeting. Um, because Tim and I didn't talk, but you'll see a lot of the parallels here, and it's pretty amazing to me how God works in that. So we're coming to the end of our life and teaching series that started all the way back in February. Uh, today we're going to be focused on the question, what is the Christian life? At first, this was planned for um, on the preaching calendar to be one Sunday, but we decided to break this out into two different Sundays for two reasons. The main reason, number one, is the main application of everything that we have learned over the past uh, few months, and it's good to see and hear from two different perspectives instead of just one. And Jim will be wrapping this up next week, um, and you won't want to miss his sermon. It's going to be a good one. Number two, we, the elders, want to represent the Christian life and the fact that this does not revolve around one talented teacher. Our church is led by a plurality of elders, all equal, but with our own gifting strengths um, from the Lord, all working together. Mitch is our lead teacher and a very gifted one at that, and the Lord's hand is certainly on him, and we all get to learn from his Bible wisdom and knowledge. And being gifted in teaching does not mean it is easy. Regardless of what some may think, is extremely difficult to preach Sunday in and Sunday out. I mean, I only preach every now and then, and it wipes me out for almost a full month. Thinking and processing and outlining and writing, it's tough. Now, it's tough for me. I'm a technical guy, so it's even more uh, tough. But if we're not careful, we can place uh, one's gift on a pedestal and in turn set them up for failure caused by fatigue from our tendency to consume. So therefore, it's good to give rest. And so Jim and I is going to take this for the next couple of Sundays uh, to give that needed rest to Mitch. So sadly, um, you're not going to hear any special lingo this morning from Silver Creek or turning the wisdom or lack thereof of Hank Williams Jr., into parallels of what heaven is like. <laughs> Although I am a Georgia boy, I was born and raised in Conyers, Georgia. Not so much backwoods like Silver Creek, but, uh, but country enough to hear about Hank Williams Jr. during a sermon on the end times and be like, yeah, I kind of get that. So sorry you won't hear any of those special things this morning. Our focus first uh, through, life, through the Life and Teaching series has been 1 Timothy 4.16. It says to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now we've heard this 
this uh, verse a bunch over the past couple of months, and have you really taken time to sit and meditate on that? It's pretty heavy. There's a lot at stake. It's been a good one for me to process, and for me, the key word here is persevere. Persevere means to continue to do something even though it is difficult. So doing something difficult equals a lot of potential failures and learning opportunities. But failure and learning produces growth. So we continue to dig in. So to dig into the question, what is a Christian life? We're going to be studying through Psalm 15. But before we get into that, I want to spend a few minutes uh, setting this up a bit. I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this question, and for sure, my answer 15 years ago is different than it is today. And I praise the Lord for that, for that new heart that He has given me. I was raised in a Christian home, uh, attended church every Sunday, uh, youth group, mission trips, camps, the whole nine yards. In my teenage years, I was acting out the southern U.S. Christian life. And actually, I was really good at it. I was doing everything that our Christian subculture had taught me to do. I wasn't taught to read my Bible or to discern anything for myself in my own walk with Jesus. I was taught to listen to the studied or professional uh, preacher and just blindly memorize and repeat whatever it is that they were teaching. I mean, wasn't that the Christian life in the South? Get up on Sunday morning, put on your Sunday's best, go to church, go to uh, Sunday school some mornings if you woke up early enough, listen to the sermon, and if you're a kid, probably not listen to the sermon because we're too busy passing notes. And then after that, we go to grandma's house, and in my case, her, it was Nana, and we get some good southern cooking. And we gorge ourselves, we sit in front of the TV, and we watch football for the rest of the afternoon. That's really awesome, actually. It was re- I mean, it really kind of brings this uh, comfort to me when I start thinking about those southern Sundays raised in the south, which I'm sure there's a country song about. So those are some good things in that. Some good obedience things, actually, like attending corporate worship, Bible study, enjoying God's provision of Nana's cooking, and taking a Sabbath, which we were resting. Those are all good things. But in all truthfulness, that's really only about 10% of the real Christian life because the other 90% was I was living however I wanted to. And in my case, was in deep uh, blind sin. In all reality, it's 0% of the Christian life if you're only participating based on Sunday's rote uh, cultural task doing. So again, what is the Christian life? So we ask that question really setting our minds on a checklist of things to do to judge ourselves uh, to make sure we are living right. At least that's what I tend to do and where my mind goes initially. But there's a deeper answer to that question. The Christian life is walking with Christ. A Christ-like life. Walking with Christ means He is with us all the time. 
walking side by side with you every day, every hour, every minute, every second. You are in the continual presence of the Lord. If you repented of your sins and believed that Jesus died for your sins and believed that in three days He defeated death by being resurrected from the dead and He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and is ruling His kingdom, then you have effectively invited Him to live inside of you, His, his temple. If that's the case, and well, it simply is the case, then isn't there rules and, and right ways of living for us to be in the continual presence of God? Yes, there is. And we see them everywhere in Scripture. Beginning June 25th, we're going to be embarking on a long journey leading us through the book of Exodus. And we're going to learn about Moses. We already know this. Moses built the the tabernacle, which was the first dwelling place for God uh, amongst His people outside the Garden of Eden. And man, it came with a million rules and right ways of living to be able to enter into His presence. So strict that if those rules and clean rituals were broken, it caused death to the wrongdoer. It's actually a bit overwhelming. Purposefully designed that way to show you just how holy God is and what sin did that wrecked our relationship with Him. So has God changed? No. Hebrews 13.8, He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, then how can we be in the continual presence of God because there is no way that we can live up to those things that we just that we know about, uh, about entering God's presence in the tabernacle? And the simple answer is because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. Without Jesus, we are doomed. So now, Psalm 15 Psalm 15 tells us some of those right ways of living, the quality of those that would enter into the presence of God for worship. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. So as we read this together, you're going to feel that this is a checklist of things. And in essence, it is. As Christians, we read the Scriptures through the lens of Jesus who makes all things possible. When we seek Him first above all other things, and He graciously teaches us these things, as He does His sanctifying work in us. So we're going to read this together now, and then we'll dig into it, all ending with some pretty good news. So let's stand now, and uh, it's going to be on the screens here, and let's read Psalm 15 together. Lord, who may reside in Your tent? Who may settle on Your holy hill? One who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor bring shame on his friend. A despicable person is despised in his eyes, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. He does not lend his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. One who does these things will never be shaken. Hear the word of the Lord. So as I studied this, I used some commentary by Peter Craigie that described the form and structure of this psalm 
And I found it quite interesting. Now, I'm not going to attempt to explain it in detail as I don't understand forms and structures of writing. I'm a technical guy, so you give me some numbers and a mathematical formula and I'll geek out on you. So I did what every good technical writer does. I pulled out the necessary facts and here they are. This psalm is treated in three parts. The question, the answer, and the promise. That's it. There's your facts. <laughs> three pages of literature mumbo-jumbo narrowed down into one sentence. You're welcome. Now all you literature nerds go dig into the details if you want to, but seriously, they, they are really interesting and I encourage you to do that on your own time. So the question here, David starts uh, the psalm with two questions. And basically the same question written two different ways. He's asking under what condition or character must someone possess in order to enter into the presence of God? Peter Craigie summarized these questions like this, and this is his quote. The question, if genuinely asked, will elicit an answer which invites examination of the self and hence appropriate preparation for admission to worship and to the divine presence. So I'm going to read that again. The question, if genuinely asked, will elicit an answer which invites examination of the self and hence appropriate preparation for admission to worship and to the divine presence. So as we now look at the answers to the question, this should make us examine ourselves and judge ourselves rightly. If we do that, it should launch us into action by uh, digging deeper into relationship with Jesus. So the answer to the question is given in ten conditions, both positive and the negative. The positive being the act of doing good, and the negative, the absence of evil. These characteristics are not disjointed. If you break one, you essentially break them all. So let's look at them. Number one, walks with integrity. That means the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. Number two, works righteousness. The act of having a right relationship with God. Number three, speaking truth in his heart. To speak truth to ourselves, we have to know the truth. We'll dig into that more in the application part. Number four, does not slander, nor does evil to his neighbor. Meaning, the act of making false statements that damages others. Number five, does not take up a reproach against his friend. It does not spread rumors or gossip about his friend, is what that is saying. Number six, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Despised is basically despising someone who does evil. Number seven, honors those who fear the Lord. There's really no description needed on that one. Number eight, swears to his own hurt and does not change. Which is saying it's an oath to do no wrong without wavering. Number nine, does not put out his money at interest. And this is from Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, which says, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, who's your brother or sister, 
Interest on money, food, or anything that can be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen, your brother or sister, you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you and all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. Now, even though it says we can charge interest to a foreigner, it doesn't mean that we can do that at an exploitation or abuse. That goes back to the number one, walks with integrity. And finally, uh, the tenth, does not take a bribe against the innocent. Again, in Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So all these, all these ten things, leads to the end in verse 5, to the promise. It says, he who does these things will never be shaken. So never be shaken. Now that doesn't mean security or freedom from oppression or trouble in the world. In fact, we see all throughout scriptures, stories of trials and tribulation, and much to the joy of their enemies. And I'm sure that we have all felt our own trials and tribulations. So what this does mean is that we will never be shaking from, shaken from the presence of God. Amen. Matthew 7, 24-27 Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The rain, the wind, and the floods came to both houses, but only one stands, the ones that are built on the rock. So how do we, what does this teach us about the Christian life? What are we supposed to do with these things that we've learned this morning? We have four points of application this morning. Number one, share the good news of Jesus. For the non-believers, they don't get the promise of being unshaken. That's a harsh reality. I know this because I've been there. I have felt what it's like to build a house on sand, hearing the words of Jesus and not acting on them. And my fall was super hard. But God was relentless in pursuit of me as He is for everyone. He does not want to see one perish. He has given us the mission to speak the good news and He will do the rest. So to the non-believers, repent of your sins and believe the gospel as this is the only way that you will ever attain the continual presence of God and find true joy. Without Jesus, you are doomed. Eternally separated from God. 
Jesus took on your sins and died in your place, covering you with His blood, washing you clean. And all you have to do is believe that He did that for you and that He defeated death, rising up from death on the third day and ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling His kingdom. The door is always open. Today is the day of salvation, to believe and walk in faith. Number two, read your Bible. The only way to know the truth is to read and study the truth. Spend some quiet time with Him every day and allow Him to speak to you through His Word. Now in this life, we all know and you probably have already felt that you'll encounter lies. The evil one knows God's Word and often uses it to make you stumble. Remember the serpent in the garden? He twists God's words with subtle nuances, and it can sound good and right. But the only way to combat the lies is to know the truth. We have access to the truth, and we have the Holy Spirit that freely gives us wisdom and understanding. So read and meditate on it. We can also speak lies to ourselves. So take every thought captive and test it against the truth. Stop speaking lies to yourself and replace it with God's truth. Walk in close discipleship with a brother or sister who is faithful in reading and knowing the truth. Share with each other and allow them to test your thoughts, remembering that iron sharpens iron. Number three, take refuge in the Lord. This has been a theme for me over the past few months. I've heard this truth over and over and over again, and I'm still not sure that I'm good at it. I constantly live in the fight of waiting on the Lord and taking action. I believe the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle of those two things. But I often choose action based on my ability to take control and make things happen. Resting in the refuge of the Lord is the easiest thing to say, but it's the hardest thing to do. If we were able to do all those things that are listed in Psalm 15, then Jesus died in vain. We need Him to be all those things for us in our place so that we can be with Him. The true realization of God's grace will bring you to your knees in praise and thanksgiving. It's not a reason to stop striving. Seek the Lord and His kingdom first and He will graciously teach you all of those things. Proverbs 2, 1-9 through He says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord 
and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of injustice, and He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. Take refuge in the Lord. And then finally, number four, we worship. The band can can start making their way up. Worship is our response. It's the response to the one who has set us free. If you were standing in front of a, a, a judge in the court of law, waiting to hear your sentence, and a man walks up and tells the judge that even though you are the one that is guilty, he will take your punishment. And in turn, tells the judge to set you free. We would be shouting from the mountaintops as we left the courtroom. That's what Jesus did for you. So respond now with a joyful heart. Not just now, but always. Because you are always in the presence of King Jesus. So let us pray and then let's worship. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help solidify it deep in our hearts so that we do not sin against you. Lord, help us remember to take refuge in you. You freely give good things to those who love you. Give us rest in that. Lord, remove the veil from blind eyes. Use us to share your good news always being on the alert and ready. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.